Welcome to World of Soundtracks, a monthly podcast where we explore storytelling aspects in films and TV through music. Whether it is comparing book adaptations, observing themes over a series, or microanalyzing the choice of instruments, we look at how the story is told and moves us. I'm your host, Ruth Mudge, and today we'll be looking at the 2005 movie of Pride and Prejudice. First of all, I want to thank all of you who have tuned into this podcast and for all of your kind comments and encouragement. This is going to be a monthly podcast, releasing an episode at the end of each month. As some of you may have guessed, this first batch of episodes is going to be focused on Jane Austen adaptations. The movie of Pride and Prejudice from 2005 is quite different from the previous miniseries. One thing we will notice with various Austen adaptations is that miniseries not only have more time to tell a story, but they also have more time for numerous music themes. Movies have to be much more succinct and often choose just a few narrative and musical themes instead of covering every plot point. This particular Pride and Prejudice is all about emotion and quiet beauty. The aesthetics are very important to Joe Wright, the director, which gives the music a key role in providing the mood. Elizabeth herself is much more contemplative, less witty and bouncy than other versions, and the music reflects that. By the way, if you are a book purist who has trouble with a few of the changes or things being left out, then I will remind you that the changes from the 1940s version are both greater and crazier. It's all a matter of perspective. Dario Marinelli is the composer of this film and has written three other scores for Joe Wright films, including Anna Karenina and Atonement, each nominated for awards. Often a director finds a composer that they really connect with and so continue to collaborate with together. John Williams and Steven Spielberg or Patrick Doyle and Kenneth Branagh are two that immediately come to mind. Pride and Prejudice was a jumping-off point for Dario Marinelli and Joe Wright in their partnership. Dario has also written music for the newest movie version of Jane Eyre, I Capture the Castle, Quartet, V for Vendetta, Kubo and the Two Strings, amongst others. The other important partnership to note is with the French pianist Jean-Yves Thibodeau. Personally, I think he is one of the great pianists of this day, having a beautiful, delicate touch, and yet still having great power when required. He adds a beauty that is necessary to this film. Interestingly, the partnership ended up going both ways. He recognizes that this soundtrack has brought people to his concerts and to classical music, which he finds an honor, and so he recognized it by including a solo piano Pride and Prejudice Suite, arranged by Mirinelli, for his 60th birthday album called Carte Blanche that he released last year. If you ever want to compare whether instruments make a difference, then I recommend listening to the suite. While most of the music is focused on solo piano tracks such as Dawn, there are a few bits that have a different impact when it's just piano alone as opposed to having the orchestral instruments accompany it. The opening theme had to be written before filming, as it is performed both by Elizabeth and Georgiana in the film. While the level of ability is clear between the halting, stumbling nature of Elizabeth's playing to the more polished Georgiana, and then performed professionally by Thibodeau, not only does it help tell the story by comparing the two ladies' abilities, but this theme is an example of diegetic music. Diegetic music means that the music comes from the world that you see. It is a piece that the characters hear and not just by the audience. 
it connects the audience and character by making it a part of their world. In this case, it is one of Elizabeth's themes and connects her to home. Joe Wright mentioned in a commentary that even when she hears Georgiana playing it while lost in Pemberley, it is this call and connection of home that she is following. But before we jump ahead too much, we should start with this opening theme first heard in Dawn. The opening is such a contrast to the miniseries with life and energy heard both in the pianoforte and ensemble. Here, the film opens with quiet and birds, gradually waking up with a dawn to a solo piano, playing a repeated note, gradually opening up to a simple version of the theme as Elizabeth walks along reading. It is very peaceful. At this point, more movement begins in the accompaniment, and the tempo becomes faster as Elizabeth walks to the Bennett family home, and you see the whole family interacting in a bit of chaos, with Mary playing scales, animals making noises, Lydia and Kitty running around Jane before it calms down almost like a hymn, as Elizabeth enters the house overhearing Mrs. Bennett telling Mr. Bennett about Netherfield. Not only does the middle section contain more motion, but it also covers a greater breadth of the piano, especially in the bass, to fill out the sound. There is a great amount of scope and storytelling in this introduction scene while remaining in solo piano. It is a self-contained story of the Bennett family and home. Any other instruments are saved for later in the film.
the busier middle section returns once more as the girls celebrate hearing that Mr. Bennett has in fact already met Mr. Bingley, and Elizabeth enjoys watching her family erupt with joy and a bit of chaos with Lydia and Kitty. One of the things I love in a good soundtrack is the idea of musical bookends, bringing together the beginning and the end with a specific theme that ties it all together. This film is unusual in that it had two different endings, one for the British audience and one for the Americans. We will get to the American ending later on. The British one ended with a scene of Lizzie and her father regarding her wish to marry Mr. Darcy. This scene itself is bookended with that opening solo piano theme before she speaks to her father, and then it blossoms with strings and winds at the end to add color and warmth. The opening theme for Elizabeth and the Bennett home returns to wrap up the story in Mrs. Darcy. This theme is also used for the title sequence at the end, tying the beginning and end together in both films with a feeling of home for both the audience and the main couple. It provides a wonderful sense of contentment and completion. Now this soundtrack straddles the line between classical and modern, both in style and instrument choices. While the use of a pianoforte would have been more period accurate, it would not fit this particular adaptation's mood in being a little too bright and less connected or legato. It also did not have the same range and amount of keys that a modern piano has. Almost all Jane Austen adaptations use either piano or harp, or in this case, both, as those instruments are featured in her books. Having the piano as an instrument for Elizabeth's voice in the soundtrack makes sense, since she herself plays that instrument, even if she is rather a poor player in this version. Marianelli has said in interviews that he was inspired by Beethoven's early piano sonatas. Here is an example from Beethoven's Piano Sonata No. 3 in C major, Movement 2, and you can hear the movement of harmony in the left hand, with a mixture of suspensions, dissonance resolving down, and anticipations, dissonance resolving up, providing tension and release that resemble some of the choices heard in Dawn and other parts of Pride and Prejudice. While you can hear the classical influences in the melodies and many of the harmonies in Pride and Prejudice, the rhythm particularly in the solo piano parts make it quite current, and also help to portray the emotional journey of Elizabeth. There's a lot of two against three in the main theme, and even changing time signatures in many of the tracks, giving both a fluidity and almost a lack of time. 
the classical era loved clarity of rhythm and harmonic structure, which is the exact opposite of what is heard in the majority of the film. That being said, it is played so effortlessly that it feels more like rubato and interpretation, instead of a clear conflict between hands. It's hard to notice these unless you start to look at the sheet music. The use of the piano and a smaller set of orchestral instruments, such as the solo clarinet, oboe, flute, and French horn, along with strings, lend to a classical-era orchestration of what would have been featured in many of the orchestral pieces of the time. In fact, the solo clarinet is a feature frequently heard in Austin adaptations. The clarinet is one of the first instruments heard after the piano, outside of the Meriton Ball, which we will return to, playing the initial theme as Elizabeth and Jane talk about Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy after the Meriton Ball in Stars and Butterflies. It adds in some color to the theme, as well as depth, as the girls giggle over the evening. While the opening and title theme are the bookends and mood setting for the movie, the one that is really Elizabeth's theme as she journeys through the story is Secret Life of Daydreams. As a side note, I love the soundtrack and it probably is in my top five, but some of the track titles are a bit ridiculous. The first time this theme appears is when Elizabeth is walking to Netherfield to visit Jane who is sick. In most Austin adaptations, there's a great amount of silence to hear the dialogue since much of it is taken from her books, and this adaptation uses it even more to hear the birds and life around them. This means that the moments that include music are often there for an emotional point or for transition scenes, often traveling from one place to another. This would be one of the first traveling moments with music that we see as Elizabeth is visiting out of concern for her sister. It also highlights her love of walking and independence. This particular moment is not on the soundtrack, but we will be hearing other versions very soon. The next time this theme is heard is when the family is getting ready for the Netherfield Ball. This is a faster version, matching the movement happening within the house, seeing all the various girls get ready while the maid Betsy walks through the house humming a different tune at the same time over the music. There is a joyful quality with the movement, even though the theme itself is a bit jagged, with larger leaps in the melody and the ostinato of the moving left hand does not line up with a melody. An ostinato is a repeated pattern over and over. Probably the most famous version is Puckabell's Canon in D in the cello part. This ostinato figure will appear again later in the movie. At this juncture, Elizabeth is excited to see Wickham, Jane to see Mr. Bingley, and there is an air of anticipation in getting ready for the ball. At arrival to Netherfield.
This theme is frequently used as Elizabeth is thinking about all that is going on around her. The speed and activity, or lack thereof, reflects her emotional space. This returns in the solo clarinet as she hides near the end of the Netherfield Ball, away from the busyness and almost humiliation of the evening. Secret Life of Daydreams is also much slower. As Elizabeth is on the swing after Jane leaves for London, Charlotte tells her that she's going to marry Mr. Collins, and her world seems to be a little uncertain. Things are not how they ought to be, and yet seem monotonous at the same time, shown both by the slow movement and changing scenery. In the music, the ostinato in the left hand is in contrast between the pauses of the main melody, not quite in sync with each other, but very close. The violins also play the same melody over it, but it is almost twice as slow as the piano's version. There is also a static nature, not only in the repeated pattern of the left hand, but the underlying string harmonies that go back and forth between two chords, only heard in the violas as they change back and forth between two notes, as the lower strings hold on to a single note the whole time, which is known as a pedal tone. Elizabeth notes in her letter to Charlotte near the end, that everything seems a little gray, and the lack of movement in the accompaniment supports that feeling in Secret Life of Daydreams. This version is the one that has the least synchronicity between the different parts, and it really reflects Elizabeth's own confusion about everything that's been happening. You can hear the swirling nature of what's happening in her mind, even though it's a very slow movement at time around her. She has a lot to process, and you could just hear that in both the monotony and yet the jaggedness of just not quite lining up together. One of the most lovely moments in the soundtrack is when this theme soars in the violins over the flowing piano, harp glissandos, and chords held by strings and horns that give it depth and Liz on top of the world. Ignoring the fact that she is never called Liz, this has a soaring nature to reflect the beauty of the location, 
but the never-ending movement in the piano and harp glissandos also reflect the swirling emotions in Elizabeth at this point. She is keeping secrets from Jane about Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy. Her own opinions of Mr. Darcy and Mr. Wickham have been rocked. While on a beautiful vacation with family, she can't quite seem to escape the changes going on in her heart and mind. There are three melodies that begin with a single repeated note leading into it in the piano, first heard in dawn as the world is waking up. The second is in a minor, sadder version after she receives Mr. Darcy's first proposal. In many ways, she is waking up both to herself and her prejudices of Mr. Darcy and Wickham. In the carriage right before the cliff scene, the theme is faster, while she appears to be sleeping but yet not at ease. It is a motif or shorter version of the dawn theme, with a melody still in major, and yet the piano is not settled in a key, with more dissonant notes almost like a cluster chord hanging around it. This is a lovely moment to have the two main melodies dovetail into each other, going from dawn to Elizabeth's emotional theme. The music after Mr. Darcy's first proposal does in some ways reflect a sadder, minor version of Dawn, with the opening of a repeated note. The melody resembles the opening motif, and yet is a bit different. There is less movement overall to give the sense of space. It holds and releases emotional tension, with both the long pauses, change of time signatures, losing all sense of beat structure, and the use of the solo cello. The cello in many ways reflects Mr. Darcy's voice. It enters as she stares in the mirror, reflecting on the proposal and trying to make sense of it all, beginning almost a duet between the piano and cello during the narration of Mr. Darcy's letter, the cello being Darcy's voice and the piano Elizabeth's emotions in hearing those words.
it starts to get a bit more momentum near the end as Mr. Darcy rides away, with the voiceover of his letter regarding Wickham and his sister, with the cello riding up to a climax but not resolving. The music is left hanging before coming down to the piano again with the repeated note, also not completely resolved at the end, as she is interrupted by Charlotte. This cello melody returns when Elizabeth learns of Lydia and Wickham's elopement, as she says nothing can be done, we have not the smallest hope. Mr. Darcy expresses that he wished he could help, but Lizzie sees no hope, and they head back home. It is a mournful version accompanied by lower cellos, before moving into the most dramatic music of the soundtrack, which is also used right before the first proposal, when Elizabeth learnt of Mr. Darcy being responsible for breaking up Jane and Bingley. In both cases, she is traveling and emotionally distraught about her sisters, which can be heard in the rhythmic pattern of the strings and horns, arpeggios and the clarinets and violins, and the minor melody above it all. It is a good thing to note also that that is one of the few times that you can hear timpani, which are drums, in the entire soundtrack, giving it a weight and gravitas to this particular moment. Elizabeth's emotional theme returns, bringing many of these parts together near the end. I don't think it's coincidence that the second proposal happens again at dawn, providing a visual bookend to the story, with the sun coming up and the world quiet in the mist. As Lizzie walks in the field, the more mournful melody of the cello appears, but this time it is in the flute, harp, and strings. 
She cannot sleep after her confrontation with Lady Catherine, and she is a bit sad over Mr. Darcy leaving. It is as if she has realized her own feelings too late. While the melody is mournful in nature, it sounds more wistful in the higher timbres of the flute and using the harp instead of the piano, giving it a more delicate feeling. As Mr. Darcy appears, walking in the mist, the piano returns with the opening piano part of Liz on Top of the World, that mixture of major and minor of the first theme, a mixture of hope and almost disbelief before it opens up in the same way with her second theme soaring in the violins. This time the emotions are swirling with love and joy instead of confusion. Playing it in a higher key helps with the soaring aspect even more. As Mr. Darcy begins to speak, a version of the strings that went with his letter plays, but again with harp and flute, making it romantic instead of mournful, as he is uncertain of Elizabeth's feelings. The cello does return as a duet with the flute, reinforcing my belief that the cello is reflecting Mr. Darcy's voice as he tells Lizzie that he loves her. The strings hold suspended slowly moving between chords as the sun comes up and Elizabeth responds to his proposal. It is a beautiful culmination of the three themes coming together, as well as a transformation from the first proposal to the second in using some of the same music in a different orchestration, as well as providing a romantic buildup for the audience to swoon as Mr. Darcy walks across the mist-covered field.
The last time the theme of secret life, or Elizabeth's emotional theme, is heard is in the American ending, as she and Mr. Darcy are enjoying each other's company at Pemberley after they are married. This is a gentle version in the strings. There is no rhythmic tension or ostinato that had been in the earlier versions, and there is less movement underneath the melody, the way there was in both the cliff and proposal scenes. This one is much more at peace and a bit more romantic. It plays in the violins first, then with the cellos providing harmony underneath. There is some tension and resolution in the harmonies, but it always resolves. French horns and oboe join in during the kissing portion to enrich the texture and colors, helping the music swell with a harp glissando at the end. There's nothing that suggests romance in your big kiss scene like a harp glissando. Whether you love this scene or find it unnecessary, the music is definitely a romantic finish to the story, bringing to a conclusion not only Elizabeth's journey of understanding herself through her prejudices and pride, but also learning to find love in the process. One of the reasons that I love the use of solo violins that are joined by the cellos is that it harkens back to their dance at Netherfield. While the music is quite different, the use of these particular instruments and how they work both solo and then together resolves what had occurred earlier. In their dance at Netherfield, the majority of it is in the solo violin, playing Rondo from Abdelazar by Henry Purcell. This moment is a great example of combining the old with the new. Purcell's theme was written in 1695 and used in many forms throughout the years, including Benjamin Britten's A Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra. Here is an example of the original. By taking away the harmony and making the piece a little slower helps to zoom in on Elizabeth and Darcy, as well as their conversation, but it does make it more challenging to dance to. Often adaptations choose to either make the music grow when the main couple is dancing, or to pull you in, as in this case by using just one instrument, 
making it much more intimate. The original harmony is not used in this version at all, but instead the violins enter slowly holding cluster chords above the melody. Cluster chords are used more frequently in current music with notes played at the same time close together that have a little dissonance in it. It is not until their conversation finishes that two things occur. The other dancers disappear, and the solo cello enters in dialogue with the violin, the cello rising up to meet the violin coming down. This is the first time the solo cello appears having two instruments in a dance themselves slowly meeting together at the end. It all tells a story without any dialogue with the dancing and the instruments in a postcard to Henry Purcell. This dance is what would qualify as the special dance, not only for the couple, but being different musically from the rest of the dances in the movie. In many ways, it bridges the gap by using an old tune, but in the style and harmony of Marianelli's music. The rest of the dances are traditional folk and dance tunes, but like the Pride and Prejudice miniseries, the size of the ensemble tells you much about the people, their class, and location. What is interesting to note, however, is that it takes the exact opposite approach. Instead of a smaller ensemble for the Meriton Ball and a larger one for Netherfield, here it is a large folk orchestra sound for Meriton, with strings, drums, flute, and horns. It also provides contrast to the fact that only solo piano has been heard until this point. Then everything erupts into a full, crowded, spirited ball that almost seems like a country folk dance in a barn. Not only that, but the piece is a reel or a jig in 6-8, which is the lively quality often used with overall sound in the miniseries of Pride and Prejudice. The energy and joy is palpable and felt by all, except Miss Bingley and Mr. Darcy when they arrive. contrast is at the Netherfield Ball, with a smaller, more refined ensemble of a string quintet and flute heard in another dance. The feel is more subdued and classical in nature. This musically tells you of the status of the Bingleys, and how the ball they offer is much higher quality than the town dance. (laughs) 
However, the slower, refined air does change near the end of the ball as everything starts to unravel, with Mrs. Bennet and the youngest two being a little drunk and Elizabeth remarking to Charlotte that her whole family is bringing ridicule on themselves. The music gets faster and faster each time the melody repeats as things proceed to get out of hand. Caroline Bingley mentions to Mr. Darcy as they dance that she almost expects to see a pig there and have to chase it. The music is reflecting this chaos that is infecting the Netherfield Ball due to the people who have attended and can't slow down. While most adaptations use the dance music to help tell the larger story, this movie is very particular in setting the stage with the size of ensemble and tempo of the dances chosen. Along with that, it is also unusual that most of the dance music is in fact included on the soundtrack considering it is not written by the composer, and that it also uses military fife tunes for the regiment, both as they arrive at Meryton, but also later when the girls meet Mr. Wickham in the village. It helps give a bit of historical grounding and aids to the excitement of the younger Bennett sisters in seeing all of the officers. Because the majority of the music does feature solo piano with a more intimate combination of instruments for Elizabeth's journey, or the contrast of the dances for the town of Meryton. This means that the few moments where the larger orchestra occurs helps to make the drama sparkle or become more intense. Many of these surround the Bingleys, such as everyone arriving at the Netherfield Ball. The piano is still prominent as Elizabeth and her family arrive, a harp has a glissando with the fire transition from the candle to torches, and we hear trumpets and winds almost as a fanfare. This is one out of two occasions that the trumpets play, so it highlights the feeling of arrival to a grand occasion. It also reminds me a lot of a classical piano concerto, such as Beethoven's first piano concerto, Movement Number no. 1. Here is... Arrival to Netherfield. Since several of the music cues involve traveling and transitions, leaving Netherfield is a moment that includes a medium-sized ensemble, beginning quieter with the piano, strings, and oboe, but switches to the clarinet playing the melody over harp and strings. This is one of the more melancholy tracks, with the Bingleys and Mr. Darcy leaving after the ball, 
the house being packed up, and Jane and Mr. Bingley both left brokenhearted. This is where the use of the oboe and clarinet add to the sadness and color, and the piece feels more classical in nature due to less rhythmic complexity. It is also a contrast to the joy and fanfare of arriving at the ball, ending with this immediate and sad departure. The other cue involving Mr. Bingley is near the end, as he is trying to work out his proposal-slash-apology with Mr. Darcy at the lake. This is a humorous and lighter moment, with the strings providing movement, the flute joining the piano and the melody, and the trumpet joining in briefly. This is an orchestral version of Georgiana in the piano piece she plays at Pemberley, and one of the other more classical-sounding pieces in this group. The 12-8 time signature gives a bouncy, light-hearted feeling, the fancy turns and trills are quite common ornamentation in classical music, and the alternation between the strings and winds at the end all aid for a fun scene with a more traditional sound. Track Georgiana is not the only one to be used twice in the movie. Bringing us back to solo piano and Elizabeth's journey is the living sculptures at Pemberley. This track is also used twice, well, technically three times if you count the end credits, and it is the last portion of Elizabeth's journey that we have not covered. This plays as her feelings begin to change, and she realizes it while visiting Pemberley with the gardeners. It is a bit more melancholy as she looks around at what she has passed down, but particularly who she has passed down. It seems to start out of the music that had played during Mr. Darcy's letter, but then shifts. The movement in the left hand alternates between two notes, slowly changing harmony with a slower melody on top, giving space for reflection, and also the ideas of things beginning to slowly change. In many ways, it resembles secret life of daydreams, but the harmonies change more. Instruments begin to join in as strings fill in the harmonies, solo clarinet, then higher violins take the melody, and then solo French horn plays the melody as she looks at Mr. Darcy's bust. 
I mentioned in my previous episode that French horn is often used for Austin's heroes, and this is the only time in this adaptation that the melody is in the French horn. It speaks of a noble character, worthy of admiration and respect. Going into higher violins over the harp, as the housekeeper asks Elizabeth's opinion of Mr. Darcy, gives a soaring and yet timeless feeling, reflecting her staring and contemplating everything that had occurred, as the music goes lower and becomes more melancholy as she continues to gaze at Mr. Darcy's statue while the others move away. This version seems to be implying that Elizabeth is regretting now her choices and her view of Mr. Darcy. This music is used again in the solo piano, as Lizzie reflects or pines away, sitting at a tree, after Mr. Bingley proposes and Mr. Darcy leaves. Mr. Darcy is also seen walking away, looking back, but neither of them see the other. The setting is not completely melancholy, however, as it also transitions to later in the evening, 
with the Bennett family rejoicing and adapting to life, with Lydia gone and Jane engaged. As haunting as this piece is, I will say I don't completely agree with using this music for the end of the credits, as it leaves the audience on a slightly more melancholy and wistful note than the majority of the music, or even the contentment at the end of the end titles. While Elizabeth does mention in the film that she loves to laugh, the music of the soundtrack as a whole highlights the nature of a quieter, contemplative, and even regretful Elizabeth who has come to terms with her prejudices and the emotional journey that entails. The music guides the audience to feel what she is feeling, whether it is a calm joy in the early dawn, melancholy with change or changing opinions and emotions, and a deeper sense of contentment and love at the end. The hints and imitation of classical music give a reminder of the setting, but in the end it focuses more on what is felt than period accuracy. It is beautiful music for beautiful aesthetics. Next month, we are going to be moving away from Pride and Prejudice to Sense and Sensibility by Patrick Doyle. This will continue the imitation of classical music in more emotional moments, which is fun to both hear and observe. You can join in on discussing all the musical moments from Pride and Prejudice on the Facebook group World of Soundtracks or on Twitter and Instagram at WO Soundtracks. Feel free also to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Amazon. Until next time, happy listening! A special thanks to all those involved to make this podcast happen, especially Edith Mudge for the title music and Lindsay Bergsma for the graphics. This is World of Soundtracks. Thank you.